We are today in Romans uh, chapter 1 still. And we looked at uh, last week we were uh, we were we picked it up in in verse 22 and I was uh, delusionally thinking that we would get down through 32 but we of course did not we only got through about verse 27 but these are important verses to comprehend and get a handle on so I don't apologize uh, <coughs> uh, wouldn't any good if I did anyway but uh, so uh, Last week, we focused on verses 22 through 27. Today, I'd like to look at verses 28 through 32. The whole passage actually begins in verse 18. So let's do this. I'll begin reading in verse 18 and we'll read down through verse 32 just to get the context. And uh, as we're looking, as we're reading through those verses in 22 through 27, try to think about what we talked about last week and we'll review that in a moment before we go on. To verse 28. <clears throat> he says, in beginning in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and His divine nature have been clearly seen having been understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and the birds and the four-footed animals and crawling creatures." Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Okay? Pretty picture, huh? <laughs> uh, 
So, uh, going back then uh, to about verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools, etc. in those next several verses. What do you recall that we talked about last week? Or feel free if you want to go back another week. What are some of the things that you recall that we have been talking about that stick out in your mind? Okay. Okay. There does seem to be a progression that's going on here. Uh, that's not uh, not totally clear, not necessarily explicitly clear, but uh, but it seems that there is a progression. That what he's describing here is events that follow one after another, rather than something that happens kind of all at once. What else? There are two sets of three in this passage. What are those two sets of three? Okay. Okay. Exactly. There are three exchanges that men make in this passage. Uh, and then there are three responses that God makes. In verse 18, he said, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And the, and the revelation of that wrath are these three uh, giving overs that God does. God's three responses to man's three exchanges. So, man has three, three things that he exchanges, that he changes over, and God responds then by giving man over uh, in three separate ways or three distinct times or situations that God responds by giving over. And this giving over of God is is an expression of God's wrath and God's displeasure for sin. Okay, uh, what are the three exchanges that men make that Paul talks about in this passage? What's the first one? Okay, let me just jot these down here so we can kind of keep them in mind. They exchange the glory of God for the image of corruptible man or beasts or created objects, whatever, okay? Uh, and what's the second exchange they make? The truth of God for lies. Okay. So they exchange the truth of God. Okay. And then what's the third exchange they make? Okay. They exchange the natural use for the unnatural. Okay? It's a reference to sexual perversion. Okay? And God then responds with His three rats, His giving over. And what are the three things that God gives man over to in response to these three exchanges? Okay, he gives him over to the desires of his heart to impurity. Okay, in your translation it may say the lust of his heart. But the word there, as we pointed out last week, is really a neutral word. It can be either positive or negative. Okay, and so, so the desires, and, and my argument in the passage is that the desires that he's talking about are just heterosexual desires, but they are desires that we, that we have to use 
our heterosexual inclination that is God-given to use it for impure purposes. So he gives us over to the desires or lusts of our heart. And what do we mean when we say God gave us over or God gave man over? What do we, what do we mean by that? I explained that last week if you can remember. Okay, he took the restraint out of the way. So there are, re- there are restraints that God placed in man's way to protect us from sin. And when man exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass, to use the passage in Psalms, then God removes some of the restraints that prevent us from, from exploiting these desires of our heart for impurity. Okay? Uh, what is the second? What is the in response to the second exchange? What is God's response? He gives them over to what? Degrading to degrading passions. Okay. Now he uses a different word here, and what's clear here is that these. These passions are only evil. These desires are only evil and they are degrading. And specifically, as he elaborates, it has to do with the women uh, exchanging the natural function for that which is unnatural and men in like manner abandoning the natural function of the woman uh, and burning in their desire for one another. So very clearly he's talking about homosexual desire and homosexual activity. Now, now what Paul is specifically condemning here is the activity but it's the passion that we've been given over to. It's that degrading passion that, that man has in his heart, this perverted desire to use the natural function for something which is unnatural, which God gives man over to. And then man does that and, uh, and, and uh, exploits that. And then God gives them... So they have uh, exchanged then the natural use for that which is unnatural and then what is God's response? Okay, so then God gives them over to a depraved mind. Now, we didn't get this far last week. This is what we'll be talking about today. Okay. Now, as I mentioned, I, uh, we didn't get as far last week uh, as I thought we might. Uh, so this week is really just a continuation of last week's lesson. And I, uh, I have titled this little series of two lessons, this particular lesson. I have titled it, if you noticed on the Internet, uh, it doesn't coincide with the title on your sheet, and there's a reason for that. But I have titled it Four Exchanges. Okay, we're talking about three exchanges, but I've titled it Four Exchanges. So by the time we get to the end of today's lesson, hopefully you'll know why I've titled it Four Exchanges. Okay, but uh, just uh, by way of information, uh, when I'm going through and, uh, and lining out a syllabus and planning out the lessons and what I'm going to study, I assign a title, just kind of what I think we might be talking about. And that's what you usually find on your little handout sheets is the title uh, that's kind of a temporary title. But after I've taught the lesson and know what I've actually said, then I, then I can pick a real title for it. So oftentimes you'll find, if you look on the Internet or if you look on the CD versions, you'll see there's a different title for the passage than the original title I had. So, but the title that I've chosen to put on this passage is 
the four exchanges. And that will become clear as we go on. Okay, but, but Paul is setting before us here three exchanges and God's three responses. And last week, we looked at the exchange of the glory of God for the image of man or crawling creatures, etc. And God's response of turning men over to the desires of his heart for impurity. Uh, and then man exchanged the truth of God for a lie and God responded by giving them over, removing the restraints that previously existed on their degrading passions. And so man went whole hog then into, no pun intended, into uh, natural use, uh, perverting the natural use for the unnatural. And now God responds with a depraved mind. But these are the two that we looked at last week. So today we're going to pick it up in verse uh, uh, 28. But I do want to make a couple more comments uh, about this, uh, the uh, area that we were finishing up on last week regarding the question of the exchange of the natural for the unnatural or with the Scripture's teaching on homosexuality. And we explored that in some depth last week. But there were a couple more things uh, that I wanted to mention about that we didn't get to. And one is that it's... Uh, I, think, I think it's some, sometimes it's... Uh, uh, it's typical for us to view homosexual behavior as kind of the end of the degradation process. You know, there, there is this process of turning away from God and God's judgment. And, and eventually it leads down. And, and when you get to the end of the line, that's homosexual activity. Okay, And we tend to think that because it's the third exchange, right? But what we're going to discover today is that homosexuality is not the end of the line. That actually that's just one more step and that things actually get worse after that. Okay. So once someone has exchanged the natural use, then God gives them over to a depraved mind. And then it's after that that Paul gives us his what we call a vice list of 21 different things that that man then goes on into because his mind has become depraved. So if when we look at someone who has turned their back on God and suppressed the knowledge of God and exchanged the glory of God and, and exchanged the truth of God and done all that and, and then they have fallen into the practice of homosexual sin, that's not even the end. It gets even worse after that. Okay, And that's the picture that Paul is trying to paint for us. As I said, it's not a particularly pretty picture, but I do hope that by the time we get to the end of today's lesson we'll be a little more encouraged uh, by things. Uh, so that's, uh, that is one thing I wanted to point out that I didn't uh, get to last week. Then I just want to point this other thing out. We talked last week about those that argue from Scripture that homosexuality is acceptable behavior for those who have, uh, have this uh, natural uh, homosexual bent, that, they, that there is this homosexual identity, so to speak. Of course, as I mentioned last week, that's completely foreign to the first century mind, completely foreign to Paul's mind or to anybody to whom Paul would be writing in the first century. It was even foreign to the mind of the Romans where homosexuality was prolifically practiced in the city of Rome as Paul was writing this. Okay. Uh, but as I mentioned last week, uh, some people in, in their efforts... Uh, 
to somehow explain around the Bible and get around the Bible's clear teaching on homosexuality, reinterpret this passage and uh, other passages like the Sodom and Gomorrah passage, etc. And they reinterpret these passages in order to make homosexuality acceptable in the eyes of God, or uh, at least uh, they think to make it acceptable in the eyes of God. What I would like to point out to you is that when someone does that, when someone reinterprets Romans 1 to make homosexual behavior acceptable, what they are doing is they are simply confirming what Romans 1 teaches. They are simply confirming how man has suppressed the knowledge of God and his mind becomes depraved and he begins to approve the things which are not appropriate, which are not proper. So, so the, the uh, activity of reinterpreting Romans chapter 1 to condemn homosexuality actually simply proves Paul's point. That mankind is depraved and that, as he says in verse 32, finally at the end, that they, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. So in their efforts to give approval to those who practice homosexuality, they have done all this that Paul has just explained and set before us. So really, they've fallen into their own trap. Well, Let's go on then. We don't want to beat a dead horse here. So let's go on. Picking up then in verse 28, after they have uh, explored all the benefits, so to speak, of their, uh, of their degrading passions and they have indulged themselves in just whatever their passionate hearts uh, desire and sinful hearts desire, then it says that just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things that are not proper. So now we encounter here, we've already encountered the third exchange. Now we're encountering the third giving over or the third wrath or the third revelation of God's wrath. And the revelation of God's wrath, the third revelation of God's wrath that is revealed from heaven is that God gives them over to a depraved mind. But he says, it's interesting the way Paul words it here. He says, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, meaning they did know in the, in the beginning. He's, that's his point. They knew at the start. Beginning, they began with a knowledge of God. But they did not, it did not seem fit to them to continue to acknowledge God. So, God has given them over to a depraved mind. Now, Paul does something here, which we don't pick up in our English translations, uh, but in the Greek, Paul is using two very similar words here. When he uses the word acknowledge God and depraved mind. He's using two similar words and it doesn't look at all similar to us. But the idea here, uh, and, and so somebody reading this, the Romans, uh, the church in Rome, as they receive the letter and they read this, they pick up on this right away, uh, that, <coughs> that Paul is using these, these two words that really come kind of from the same root. 
And and the idea there is that they did not see fit to approve of the knowledge of God. The word there really is the idea of testing with the sense of approval or to prove something. Okay, and it's the very it's the very same root word that's used in Romans chapter 12, or it comes from the very same root word that we run into in Romans chapter 12 in verse 2 when he talks about us proving the will of God. Okay? So it's the same. It's basically the same idea. So what he's saying is that mankind is, if we can put it in this way, mankind has tested God and found Him wanting. (laughs) Man has... Known, had the knowledge of God, possessed the knowledge of God, and he's decided that that doesn't work for him anymore. So he's not going to live his life under the constraints of the knowledge of God. He no longer sees fit to acknowledge God. And given the fact that he has no longer seen fit to acknowledge God, God now responds by giving them a mind that fails the test. Same root word. The idea here is that the the word, again, depraved doesn't give us the sense, uh, uh, really, of the word. At least it doesn't seem to to me. But it's the sense that we have minds that have failed the test. In other words, they don't work anymore, folks. They don't work anymore, folks. Our minds do not work the way they were intended and designed to work because we chose to suppress the knowledge of God. And we followed this sequence of events. And as I mentioned last week, no one person fits perfectly into this profile that Paul sets for, but we all fit into it generally speaking. So there may be some of the things in this list that we do not do, but we do enough of them that this list is descriptive of us. Okay, So while... Uh, some of us may not struggle with the sin of homosexuality. We struggle with sins of sexual perversion of other kinds or sexual sins of other kinds. And we struggle with malice and gossip and slander and, and all these other things that Paul describes in this, in this whole description that he gives to us. So it is a general description of mankind. And as society, as, as he discusses society, it's, it's, it's pretty accurate. We can look at our society and we can see this, this pattern. If we look at any one individual life, we may not see the pattern as closely, but it's still there. It's this general description of mankind. And because we have responded to God and to the knowledge of God the way we have, God has given us over to our minds which do not work, which fail the test which are not fitting. Meaning that, going back to this idea of God removing the restraint, we have these corrupted minds. We have these minds that have failed the test. We've had, we have these minds that no longer work the way they were intended to work. And although the human mind is a remarkable thing and it's an incredible thing and it's capable of in, in just immeasurably incredible and beautiful accomplishments, because it is still made in the likeness of God, it nevertheless is broken. And it doesn't work like it was designed to work. We, uh, we happen to own a copy of the movie Tucker. Uh, how many of you are familiar with the movie Tucker? One or two of you raised it. The car, the guy who made the car back in the, 
in the late 40s, uh, the Tucker automobile. Well, gee, I'm talking to a bunch of people who are clueless what I'm talking about here. Um, but at any rate, uh, we watched it again last night. It was made in the late 80s. I really recommend it. It's a blast. It's a fun movie to watch. But this guy invented uh, or designed an automobile that just was just way, way, way ahead of its time. Uh, and he got squashed by the big three uh, because he was trying to build his cars in Chicago instead of Detroit. And it's a, it's a convoluted story. But anyway, it's a great story and a lot of fun to watch. But there's a scene where he's getting ready to to uh, a big uh, press thing and stuff where he's getting ready to show off his new car, okay? But they really don't have it yet. They just kind of have the prototype is all they've got, okay? So it's this beautiful automobile. See, it's been designed beautifully and he's got, they got the curtain there and they're getting ready to roll the car up behind the curtain and open the curtain and let all this thousand people see it and everybody's shouting and, and they're all excited about seeing this car and the guys are trying to roll it up onto the stage so they can open the curtain but it's locked. The wheels are locked. Okay. So they, they couldn't get it free to move. Okay. Well, it was a car. It's a beautiful car. It was designed to go 130 mile an hour. It had fuel injection. Well, it would have when they finally got it done. Uh, it would have fuel injection and disc brakes and pop out windows and, and seat belts and all kinds of things that were just unheard of in the late 40s right after the war. Okay. It had all these things. Okay. It's a beautiful car. And uh, handled beautifully, uh, independent suspension on every wheel. For those of you who know mechanics, you know all this stuff, what this is all about. Anyway, it's a fantastic automobile. But it was broken. And they couldn't roll it up on the stage. So even though it's this beautiful automobile that had the potential to do all this wonderful stuff, it didn't work because the wheels were locked. Okay. Well, that's kind of a picture of our minds. Did they get it on the stage? They did eventually. Yeah. Yeah, they got it on the stage. Uh, uh, I know everybody oh. else. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They, they did get it on the stage, but only after they got the wheels unlocked and after they put out the fire. So, <laughs> really, y'all got to watch Tucker. It's a great movie. Yeah. A more contemporary would be Bill Gates introducing Windows. <laughs> we won't go there. I'm a Mac man. Don't get me going on that. <laughs> yes. But uh, the problem with Vista was it wasn't broken. It was working the way it was designed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but... I told you not to get me going. Uh, but the point is, our minds were designed to work in a certain way. But they don't work that way anymore because of sin. And God has removed the restraint that keeps our minds from, that kept our minds in their sinful state from running to the extreme. He has removed some of the restraints. And when he removed the restraints, then Paul says that we were then free to do these things which, he says, are not proper. And then he gives us this, what is called a vice list. Now, one of the things that's interesting to me about vice lists is you, run it, you, you encounter them in Scripture in a few places. You encounter them in Jewish writings. But you also encounter vice lists in secular writing of the day. So you encounter it in, for example, in, in uh, Greek literature. You encounter these vice lists, okay? Where the author just 
rattles off just boom, 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 boom. One right after another, a list of vices or a list of sins. Okay. Now, we would expect those in the scripture. <laughs> and we would even expect them in Jewish literature. But it is significant that you even find it in the writings of those who do not know God. In the sense that we speak of knowing God in the sense of, of being right with God. Okay? Which just demonstrates that even unsaved, unregenerate man knows what's sin and what's wrong. And so we, yeah, no. Yeah, that's similar to Israel's history. When you look, there are times that when they went away from God, they went so far away from God, even the pagans looked at them and went, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's one of the things that offended God so greatly. Uh, So, so then Paul lists off these 21 things, and, uh, and they, they don't appear to be in any, particular order. Some of them are kind of grouped together a little bit in kind of similar type of, uh, of sins. For example, when he talks about murder and strife and malice and that sort of thing. So some of them seem to be kind of... But, but there's, no, there's no clear pattern here uh, that, that Paul is using. Uh, he's just rattling off this list, if, if I can use that term when talking about inspired scripture. <laughs> but he's just kind of running down a list. It's like he's just writing these things down as fast as they come to mind. Okay? And you will notice, too, that there's a great deal of overlap. So, for example, in verse 29, he says, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness. He mentions greed and then he talks about evil. Well, obviously, there's a lot of overlap <laughs> between the ideas of unrighteousness and wickedness and evil, okay? So, it probably isn't profitable uh, in looking at this vice list to, to overanalyze each individual word and try and figure out exactly what is the difference between word A and word B. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point here is simply by listing so many sins which are not in any particular order and which do seem to some degree uh, a number of them to overlap one another is just to overwhelm us with a sense of how evil man has become when the restraints that were placed upon his depraved mind are removed. And so as we read through it, We encounter unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And I tell you, it's not even an exhaustive list. (laughs) There are some things Paul doesn't list here. Okay? And you could take time, if you wish, and it might be profitable to do, you could could take time to do a word study on each one and just kind of think about each one of these. Uh, uh, Different ones of them stand out to me and and strike uh, my attention or catch my attention. He talks uh, there about their malice. The idea of malice is as an intentional, willful, evil 
So these are people who now because their mind is broken, it's not working the way it designed, they find ways to do evil intentionally in order to hurt other people or to hurt God's creation. I, you know, one of the things that always boggled my mind is the, and young people sometimes, particularly boys and young men, are prone to this, the delight in finding animals and torturing and abusing animals. You know, to me it's unthinkable, but some, some young men particularly get off on that. They take a dog or a cat or some kind of animal and just recently they discovered some animal here in central Oklahoma. I think it was an eagle or something somebody had found and, 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 the, and the animal had just simply been maliciously abused. It's sometimes beyond our imagine, imagination how it happens, but, but this is what is the product of the broken mind that we are now saddled with. He talks about their gossips and slanders. This may hit a little closer to home. But it's that tendency that man has when he knows something bad about somebody to want to tell somebody else. What is that? What is that? When, you, when you've got a little tidbit or a little secret about somebody that's not very complimentary and you just got to tell somebody about it. That's a broken mind that's doing that, folks. It's things which are not proper, Paul says. And slander. Slander, as I understand it, is more than just telling something about somebody that's not complimentary, but it's telling something about somebody which is not true. It just simply is not true. It goes on all the time in our society. It goes on all the time in our culture. Again, in the movie I was talking about last night, one of the ways the big three attempted to ruin this guy, Tucker, was by slander. And they accused him of all kinds of things that just simply were not true. And he could prove it wasn't true, but that didn't make any difference because now the media had taken this slander and spread it all over the country. And so everybody thought, these things were true about him just because they'd read it in the newspapers. Sound familiar? But it not only happens on a grand scale like that with the big power brokers and the politicians and the, and, and the moguls and all that kind of, but it happens on a very personal and intimate level in our own circles, doesn't it? At work and in our neighborhoods and in our families. That for some reason, men and women say things about one another that just simply aren't true. Out of malice or out of desire to gain advantage or, or gain some feeling of superiority. I don't know why we do it, but we do it. And, and so he, he talks about envy. You know, looking what another person has and wanting it for ourselves and then treating them accordingly. Haters of God, that's one that, that's one that we, uh, we would say, well, yeah, I don't know if I know many people who actually hate God. But that's Paul's whole point, isn't it? 
They had the knowledge of God and they suppressed it. You know, they did not. Uh, how does he say it there uh, in verse 28? They, they, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. They, they just didn't think that God was worthy of them. They judged him and found him wanting. It's the hatred of God. They are insolent, arrogant, boastful. Here again, is one of those areas where Paul just kind of lumps three that are very similar together. And there are fine distinctions there between those three words in the Greek. But, but the whole idea is the, the pride that permeates the way we think and the way we speak and the way we act with one another. That feeling or that sense of superiority that we exhibit and we feel. And uh, many, many, many years ago, I wrestled, uh, I was discipling a guy uh, who was fairly new in the faith and, and, and this guy struggled uh, with what we call low self-esteem. You know, he had uh, very low self-esteem and and as I worked with him on this it became clear to me what low self-esteem is it's pride low self-esteem is pride it's the estimation that there's something better about me than people really know and if I could just convince people that I'm really better than what they think and he really didn't begin to get a handle on his low self-esteem until he saw how much it was motivated by pride. And once he saw when it was, how much it was motivated by pride and by a preoccupation with what others think about him, then he was able to shake off the shackles of low self-esteem and became, uh, became really quite a remarkable guy, a godly man and... and uh, and uh, achieve some really remarkable things even academically and otherwise. Paul says they are uh, inventors of evil. They just spend time thinking up ways to do stuff that's wrong. They are disobedient to parents. Wait a minute. Hold on. Who's he talking about there? What class of people is he talking about? Okay, yeah, but I mean all of them. All of us, yes. But specifically, when you think of somebody... Pardon? Children! Whoa, wait a minute. Paul's talking about children in this list. He's not just talking about grown-ups. He's talking about children. I, <laughs> I have a friend from many years ago. Uh, and we were in a church together many years ago. And we were Facebook friends. <clears throat> and, uh, and as far as I know, he really is a believer. He loves the Lord. Uh, politically, we're kind of different ends of the, of the spectrum. <laughs> but, uh, but I have pretty good confidence. This guy knows and loves the Lord and, and knows the Bible and goes to church and that sort of thing. But the other day, he posted on Facebook. 
He posted a quote from Nelson Mandela. I don't have the quote right in front of me here, but he posted a quote from Nelson Mandela. And basically the quote said something like this. I can't, as I said, quote it precisely. I should have written it down. But it says something like this. He said, children aren't born hating. They have to be taught to hate. This is Nelson Mandela. This is no, you know, you know, guy sitting on the street corner collecting coins, you know. This is Nelson Mandela. He says, children are not born to hate. They have to be taught to hate. Therefore, he says, we simply need to reteach them to love. And I'm thinking, has Nelson Mandela never read the book of Romans? Or does he simply not believe it? I don't know about you, but I had five kids. And we never taught our children to hate. But, and one of them here is sitting here as a witness here, okay. Uh, I can assure you we had, we had to deal with that natural inclination to hate. I think both of these things. I don't think he, I don't think the, uh, Nathaniel was a race for the veteran of the Bible. He had nobody to try until someone told him. So you kind of taught the hate there. Uh, uh, I, I would suspect, uh, I would suspect, and, and, and I think that's true, there, are, there, are, there, there is a hatred that is taught. Okay, so we as we as parents, if we have prejudices and biases, we ingrain those into our children. But when we do so, we are simply tapping a natural bent. And probably the reason that Nathaniel acted towards this friend the way he did is because because he lived in a home in which there were restraints upon that natural inclination to hate. And, and that's just the point that Paul is making is that there are restraints there that we have all these natural inclinations and there are these restraints there and when, when people follow this pattern God removes the restraints and then they're free to move in that direction. But, as we pointed out, no one person does all of these things. So some person may do some of them and somebody else may do others. Uh, so I think there will be yeah, several explanations for that. And, and, and part of it is uh, that may have been one thing he was not personally inclined to do but he also had the advantage that he had godly parents who were who were teaching him how to love and care and, and, and appreciate others for the value of who they are not for the color of their skin so but that's a good point great point so so as we go down through this list then we realize this is not true about us as grown-ups but it's true about children I mean I never had to teach my children to slander each other now, that's a hard word to use, isn't it? You know, I mean, we wouldn't typically use that word when we're talking about little Joey talking about little Betty, you know. They don't name children Betty anymore, do they? You know, uh, but, you know, we, we wouldn't think about, well, what, what little Joey's doing is he's slandering his sister, but that's what he's doing when he comes in and tells mom or dad a lie and says, Betty did it. You know, well, Betty didn't do it. Joey did it. And Joey is just slandered. His sister. Okay. So these characteristics we find out exist in the heart of man from conception. That's what Paul. That's what uh, David says. He says, 
that he went astray from the womb. And from conception, we have this natural bent to sin. And as the, as the restraints on that inclination to sin are taken out of the way, partly as a result of God's judgment on existing sin or previous sin, as that restraint is taken out of the way, we just go further. And we go further in our sin. Okay? So, he says they're disobedient to parents. They are without understanding. One commentator translates that uh, without a conscience. Now, now, we've just been arguing all the way through that man has, at a base level, he has a conscience. But clearly, some people's conscience is so mutilated, so brutalized, and so wounded that it is essentially unaffected, uh, as we see in this passage. They are untrustworthy. That's the idea of they don't keep their word. There are a whole bunch of those people out there in Washington, D.C., don't we? <laughs> a few of them are in Oklahoma City, and some of them sitting right here in this room. People who don't keep their word. Covenant breakers. Unloving. Unmerciful. The unloving there uh, may have included in it some of the... Some of the uh, sense of lacking in normal, tender, familial affection. So the type of normal love or, uh, and affection that you would see, for example, in a mother towards her children or a father towards his children or a husband towards his wife uh, or children towards <coughs> their parents, they are lacking in that. And we see so many cases of that nowadays, don't we? Where it, it, and it boggles our minds when we see uh, when we see the way parents abuse or exploit their children, or the way some children treat their parents, or the way um, uh, husbands treat their wives, or wives treat their husbands. And there's there seems to be none of that. What we would think of as just the normal, natural affection and love that somebody would have in that situation, and it's just. They're devoid of it. Well, so there's that whole list, and I've just touched on a few of them. There are, as I mentioned, 21 of them that Paul lists here, and it is not, as I said, an exhaustive list. But it is a picture for us of the condition of the man who has chosen to suppress the knowledge of God. Now, when we get to chapter 2 next week, we're going to find that those of you who are sitting in the classroom this morning going, well, that's not me. I'm not that bad. <laughs> He'll get you in chapter two. Okay. So chapter two is going to deal with those of us who go, well, you know, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. You know, I love my wife. I love my kids. I, you know, I, 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 I keep my promises. I, you know, and we go on and on and on about all the good stuff we do. And Paul will deal with us when we get to chapter two. But what he is painting for us here is a picture of the condition of mankind because he has chosen to suppress the knowledge of God. And we all actually do fit to some degree into this picture before Christ. 
this passage does describe the way I was and the way you were before Christ. Then he says in verse 32, he kind of reaches the grand conclusion that although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death or worthy of God's punishment, they not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. So, Paul says that of all these many things that they do, they know that this is deserving of God's punishment. Well, how does Paul know they know that? How does Paul know, or how do you and I know, that everybody knows that these things deserve God's punishment? Because when we practice these things, we do it carelessly, right? We do it indifferently. We give no thought to the consequences of our sin. We just do it. And if you find somebody who's living this way, acting this way, and you tell them, you know, God is going to punish you for that, what do they say? Usually. No. I don't believe God's going to punish me for this. Not me. You know, I got all this good stuff over here and this outweighs all the bad stuff. And so, God's not going to punish me. So, we, so they... So they go along and they, they, they're seemingly undisturbed by their sin and they, and they say they don't have any knowledge or belief that God is going to punish them. So why does Paul say they know the ordinance of God that those who do such things are worthy of death? Why does Paul say that? Well, it's because all the time I'm protesting, saying that I don't believe that God's going to punish me for this. I'm giving myself away that I really do think it's worthy of death. How do I give myself away? Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, that's, that's one way. But there's another way. It's really conspicuous when it happens. What happens when instead of me slandering someone else, I am slandered? What do I say? Pardon? It's wrong. it's wrong. And I want what? Justice. So it's okay as long as I'm doing it to somebody else. But when it's done to me, then my heart cries out for justice. And I reveal that I really know that these things are worthy of death. These things are worthy of punishment. But not only do I know that these things are worthy of punishment, they're worthy of death. What else do I do? What does he say there at the end of verse, the end of the chapter? Last thing he says. They give hearty approval to those who practice them. 
Now, when I mentioned earlier in today's lesson that homosexuality, I don't believe, is the end of the line, I think this is the end of the line. I think the ultimate depravity is when we give hearty approval to those who practice such things. Why is that? Well, let's just kind of think back. Let's go way back, way back to the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth, and then He created man, and He created man uh, and women, woman, and He created them with the ability to procreate and to to you know it's just a, it's, it's a remarkable thing that that in having in ourselves the image of God, one of the things that God implanted in us as part of His image is the ability to create life. Now, we don't create it ex nihilo as God does out of nothing, but, but we have this ability to create life. And it was God's intention that we do so, that we be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Because God wanted to fill the earth with billions and billions and billions and billions of people who would worship and love and enjoy Him forever. That was His intent. And it really is a remarkable thing when you think about it. And this struck me so forcefully last year when my grandson was born. Uh, because he was, he was uh, born at home. Uh, but he was born in our home. Because uh, Katrina and Jeremiah were uh, traveling. They were between cities at the time. And they just needed a place to stop and have a baby. Okay? So he said, you can have a baby at our place. You know, that's where Petrina was born. She was born in our home. And so Simeon was born in the same room that Petrina was born in. Okay. Well, of course, I wasn't in the birth room while all this was going on, but I was home that day. And, uh, and, and so the, then the baby was born. And, and I remember it was that day or the next day. We, uh, Jeremiah and I were in the living room, dining room area, and, and little Simeon was there. And I just made the observation that we now have this new life that will live forever. You know, nine months ago he did not exist. He did not exist at all. And now, because of Jeremiah and Katrina's love for one another, and the image of God that He has implanted in them, they began a new life that will live forever and never end. Boy, that's pretty shocking, isn't it? That was God's intent. However, Lucifer, Satan, was determined from the outset to destroy God's creation. Now, he cannot cause a life that will go on forever to stop. He can't do that. As soon as a life comes into existence, it endures forever. It lives forever in one place or another. So he can't stop that, but he can destroy that life. He can make that life so it no longer serves the purpose for which God created it, which was to enjoy him forever. That is Satan's big mission. That's what he's about. When we give hearty approval to those who practice these kinds of things, we are throwing our lot in with Satan. 
we are saying, I like it when you destroy your life. It's a good thing when you destroy your life. It's a good thing when you do all these things that incur, incur the wrath of God and result in death. That really, I think, is the end of depravity. Well, so we're in a dire situation, aren't we? How do we get out of it? The knowledge of God won't get us out of it. That's Paul's point. The knowledge of God only puts us in a greater predicament, right? It's kind of like the law. When we get later in Romans, we're going to talk about the law and how God gives the law, but the law doesn't get us out of our problem. It just shows us our problem. It's the same way here with these revelations of the wrath of God in chapter 1. They don't get us out of the problem. They just expose to us on an increasing level how desperately evil we are. So how do we get out of this problem? Well, that's where the fourth exchange comes in. You see, there is another exchange. There are these three exchanges we talked about that man makes. But there's also an exchange that God makes. And Paul wrote to the Corinthians, even before he wrote Romans, he wrote to the Corinthians and he said, He who knew no sin became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The answer to the tragedy of these three exchanges and the consequences of these three exchanges is the fourth exchange. Is the exchange that God in His love and His grace chose to make when He offered up His Son who Himself became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Isn't that incredible? So as bleak and as dark as this picture is that we've been thinking on now for two or three weeks, as dark as this picture is, we have to put it in the context of what Paul is really saying in Romans 1. And what is the context? What is Paul trying to say in Romans 1? He's trying to say to the Romans, I want to come to Rome and I want to preach the gospel. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes even to these people whom he has just described. As bleak as it is, as dark as it is, as much as they have abandoned the knowledge of God, as much as God has given them over to the lust of their flesh and to degrading passions and to a depraved mind and to all the things that flow out of that, as much as we have been given over to all of that, the power of the gospel when heard and believed kicks into effect the fourth exchange. And He takes upon Himself our sin. And we take upon ourselves His righteousness. Okay? Next week we'll go on.